We've been going through a, a, a series over the last few weeks talking about things that we're saved to. And, and the idea was oftentimes we relate to life in terms of the things that we're saved from as Christians. And if, if you're in the room and you're not uh, following Jesus Christ, I'd invite you to consider what it means to be saved from, the things that, that God wants to save us from. But the reality is he doesn't just save us from things, he saves us into things. And those things aren't just, uh, as I've jokingly said, getting a harp and some wings in your own personal cloud that you can then play on when you die. That, that's not the picture that the Bible gives for what it means to be a Christian, what it means to, to start out in putting your faith in Jesus Christ and then and living that out. And so we've talked about how we've, we were saved, last week, saved to suffer. We talked about how we're saved to sacrifice. We're saved to serve. And these are all good and glorious things in, in the context of God's grace and mercy. When, when the world relates to it, it doesn't necessarily relate to suffering or, or sacrifice or service in, in positive terms. But when, when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, he, he is a God who came and became man, and, and he sacrificed, he served, he suffered. And today, I want to look at what it means to be saved uh, in order that we might strive. Um, and so I want, to, I want to ask this question, what, what should we do when in this Christian life it just seems like too much? And if you haven't asked yourself that question, you're probably one of the teens in the room. Um, or maybe, no, you know, I take that back. Middle school happens, so we probably all ask that question. When it seems like life is too much, what should we do? What should we do? Now, we've all got ideas, and we've all got right answers that come to mind. And I, I want you to kind of lay aside the right answers, and let's, let's be honest before God as we consider this question. I want to tell you a little bit about this guy. Um, there's a guy named William Carey who was an English shoemaker, a cobbler lived in the, uh, the late 1700s. While uh, he was apprenticing as a cobbler, he was converted to Christianity. He was in England, so uh, he, he became a member of the English church. And Over the next few years, he taught himself Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, became a preacher. So he's a pretty unique individual. And in uh, 1792, he founded a missions organization. And in 1793, he traveled to India with his family and one other missionary. Now, this was a unique situation because at the time, uh, at least within the Protestant world, there was not a lot of missions happening. Um, there were some other things happening in, in, in maybe some of the, the other streams of Christianity, but within Protestantism, uh, everyone was kind of saying, stay where you are and preach where you are. And he was saying, no, we have to go. And over the next seven years, while in India, Kerry faced obstacle after painful obstacle. His, his missionary partner realized the reality of what this mission would look like, and so he abandoned the operation, leaving Carrie with his family, his wife, and I think at the time five kids. Uh, his family faced Ill, illness and, and isolation. Again, this is, this is uh, pre-evangelized uh, India. It, it's, it's not necessarily, it's not happy to have uh, these, these people coming in. And, and there's isolation and illness that they're facing, carrying himself, caught malaria. And then his five-year-old son, Peter, died of dysentery. And all of this pressed his wife's mental health to the point that she became violent and delusional. So what should you do when in this Christian life it seems like too much? 
What should you do when in this life it seems too much? I want you to open your Bibles to to Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screen. Probably that screen would be better than looking at the one I'd look at. Galatians 6, 9. And if you'll stand with me, we're going to read it together. All right. Galatians 6, 9. It says... And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us and that as we've sung, you are good. God, it is on this foundation that you are good and you are sovereign that we stand. Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have expressed the goodness of your Father in coming, incarnating yourself, taking on human flesh, living a life of total obedience, even unto death, dying on the cross so that we might be counted righteous. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you impress upon us the realities of this scripture, that you breathe life in, in the writing of this scripture, and that you minister this reality to us. We thank you that when Jesus tells us, I will be with you always, that Holy Spirit, you embody that reality. You manifest the presence of God to us. And Lord, we lift up, I lift up this congregation and ask you to bring comfort. Comfort to those who are in pain, comfort to those who are in affliction, comfort to those who are experiencing difficulty. God, for those who would be at their wit's end, who are bumping up against the edge of their own weakness, Lord, would you show yourself strong today? Would you minister love and power and grace? Through this word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So the summary of this one verse text is pretty straightforward. It's it's basically a rewording of the phrase, don't quit. There's a reward for those who don't give up. Look at your neighbor and say, don't quit. Good. That's good. You're like, don't quit. Okay. Maybe we'll do it at the end and see how it goes. (laughs) He starts and tells us, Let's not grow weary in doing good, guys. Let's not grow weary in doing good. The, the phrase grow weary, some of you can relate to that, right? You, you feel weary. Weary. You're not just tired. You're not sleepy. It's not just that you took Dimetap and, and it's kicking in, right? That's sleepy. Weary is when your, your soul is on Dimetap. <laughs> your soul is, is, is dragging behind you. You may be walking normally, but you're, it's, it's like uh, Peter Pan and, and, and the shadow, but instead of the shadow being very uh, vibrant and alive, it's just dragging behind you. And you feel weary. And that has an emotional heart dimension, and in fact, the word there can be translated, uh, don't lose heart. 
Right? Don't lose heart. Think about, think about that phrase, right? That's an idiom that we, we use, but, but think about what that picture is of a person walking around without their heart, without their center of being, without their place of life and vitality, just kind of almost like a zombie, just walking around. They exist, but there's a vacancy inside of them. He's saying, you know what? Life gets hard, and there's a temptation on our part to allow ourselves to let our heart get lost. We get beat, and it seems like if I don't just give up here, if I don't just maybe put my heart on the shelf today, maybe just kind of uh, calcify my life to the circumstances ahead of me, if I don't do something to kind of protect myself, then I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make it. And so we begin to harden ourselves. We begin to weary ourselves. We begin to allow ourselves to, to set our, our, our center of who we are aside and just operate on autopilot. He says, don't grow weary. Don't get discouraged. He doesn't just say that. He says, don't get discouraged in what? Doing good. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Well, thanks, Paul. That's, that's broad, right? Don't grow weary. Can you give me some better parameters, Paul? Like, don't grow weary of doing just about anything that could be considered good given the right circumstances and motivations, right? So what do you mean here, Paul? Um, in verse 9, he says that if we, if we continue to do good, in due season we'll reap a harvest. But in verse 8, if we go back, it says uh, he's talking about reaping and sowing in a spiritual sense. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh, in other words, for the one who kind of uh, feeds the desires of the flesh, feeds the desires to do bad things, feeds this sinful nature that we all have, they will reap according to that sinful nature. Uh, and, and we've all seen that. You know, if you have hard living, you commit yourself to do sinful things, that tends to reap some, some results. But he says... In the next section, he says, in verse 80, he says, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So there's this, if you're paying attention, there's some parallelism that's happening. He says, to the one who sows to the Spirit will what? Reap eternal life. And so he says, let us not, what? Do good, stop doing good, because if we do good, then we will reap. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. If we do good, then we will reap. And I think what he's saying is he's drawing a comparison between sowing of the Spirit and, and doing good. And if we were to go and look at the rest of this letter, Paul is, is talking and in, 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 he's trying to impress upon the Galatian church that, that they need to live in terms of what the Spirit of God has done in them through the gospel. Their desire is to kind of uh, to, to go a different direction and, and pursue a different gospel. But he's saying don't veer away from what the, what the Lord has done in the Spirit. And so he talks in terms of sowing in the Spirit. In, in chapter 5, he talks about walking in the Spirit. Um, and he calls us not to become weary of doing good. He's, he's saying that, that we're not to become weary of just doing like... Here's what he's not saying. Don't get tired of, of, of serving on the Kiwanis. Right? That's, that's not the specifics of what he's saying. He's saying... Don't become weary of, in Galatians 5, 14, he says, loving your neighbors, for the word of the, law, the, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Galatians 5.16. But I say walk by the Spirit. Um, the walking by the Spirit is, is, is this idea of doing good. Galatians 5.22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He's saying living in this way where we're sowing into the Spirit, where we are trying to live in step with what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. That is ultimately the measure of good. When we live in such a way that we are following the, the word of the Spirit and, and the, the direction of the Holy Spirit, that's when we're, we're in the stream of doing good. As one commentator puts it, doing good or sowing in the Spirit is doing everything that a Christian is responsible for doing. So it is a broad call. And, and at this point, if you just put a period here, I think I might feel a little overwhelmed, right? Let's not become weary in doing good. And by good, I mean all of your responsibilities as a Christian. The end. Oh, gosh. Okay. But he doesn't. And, and, and the challenge is that this can be a challenging thing. The Christian life can be hard. It can be, it can be hard to do good. It can be hard. <laughs> there we go. One honest person. No, I'm just kidding. You, I, I, we're all working through this at our own pace. It can be hard to forgive. It can be hard to forgive. It's not complicated, but it can be hard. Um, it can be hard to, to parent your kids with patience, present company excluded. Right? I mean, for the people outside this church. Um, it can be hard to pursue integrity when your sinful nature, the world, and the devil himself desires to oppose you. It can be hard to humble yourself, again, for other people. For you fine folks, it's not hard at all. It can be hard to suffer chronic physical pain without promise of relief. It can be hard to trust God in the midst of unemployment. It can be hard to be faithful to God. This Christian life is hard. And you might want to give up on the whole doing good business. You might want to take matters into your own hands. You might want to say, okay, God, I will do good in these circumstances, but, but when it comes to Sowing to the Spirit, doing good in the way that you would have me do good, I'm going to do it a little bit differently here. I know you told me I need to forgive, but I'm going to hold out a little bit until that person, for, that person apologizes. I know, I know the word says that I have to, to trust you for provision and walk in integrity, but I'm going to... This is a gray area, God. This is a gray area. It can be hard and... and you might be tempted to take matters into your own hands. Weariness doesn't just express itself in terms of being tired. It expresses itself in terms of being willing to make compromises. Being willing to do things that you know full well that you shouldn't do. Weariness of soul is dangerous. But Paul says here, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't give in discouragement. And, and if you're anything like me, you, you might be asking yourself at this point, why, Paul? Why shouldn't I give up? Why not? 
He goes on and he says, there is a reward. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Here is our gospel promise. You will reap. Family, you will reap. I say gospel promise because this all falls within the context of being called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Called into this relationship with God the Father. We don't get anything apart from the fact that God has already secured it for us. And yet, within this context, as we do good, God promises a reward for our faithful obedience. It's like when my kids do things that that they're supposed to do, but they surprise me by it, and I give them, you know what, buddy? Have some candy. Have, I mean, maybe candy is the devil in your household. It's, it's not mine, so I don't know. Here, here's a cashy bar. I don't know. Whatever we do. Here, here's, uh, here's $5. It's something, we reward that. That reward isn't an expression of, okay, now you're in the, now you're in the family. Now, no, you're already in the family. That's why you're getting a reward. It's a gospel promise. And he says there's going to be a harvest reward that comes from sowing good works. But, but I, I want to pause here because the temptation that we have as, as American Christians is to very quickly define that reward, define that harvest, and define that timing by our own definition. We hear reap a harvest and we think that we get to determine what that harvest is and when it comes. Ooh, if I do good, then God's going to bless me with some money. He's going to bless me with stuff. He's going to bless me with that specific kind of relationship that I want. He's going to bless me with that, that career, that job. Now, here, I'm, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't pray for those things, don't ask for those things. Ask for God to provide. He's a good father. And, and certainly there are very practical things. You know, you invest money and you don't spend it on, on foolishness. That tends to reward you with uh, dividends, right? There, there are practical things that are realities in the world, but, but as he's talking about this reaping and sowing, as he's talking about this reward, we need to think about how he's speaking of it. And he says this, let us not grow weary, for in due season we will reap a harvest. What does due season mean? Um, the word there, uh, it, it's a Greek word that brings focus on God's timing, right? There are two different kinds of words, that, that talk about time in Greek, and one has just kind of, like, it's a watch, and there's time. And the other one has kind of to do with seasons, and, and it has to do oftentimes with God's fulfillment. And this word has to do with God's fulfillment, and we see it used in terms of the timing when Jesus got, uh, came to earth, right? That was a specific timing. And the timing when he went to the cross, that was a specific timing. And we could say that those were in proper timing or proper season. Uh, when all's said and done, you know, part of the problem with, with my lack of endurance, I don't know about yours, but part of the problem with my lack of ter- endurance is that, is that I'm willing to endure pain for the period of time that I have set. When I was in sixth grade, I, I tried out for the middle school soccer team. I hadn't done any sort of sports, uh, well, any team sports at that point. I did martial arts and things, but, but uh, I, I was like, you know what, I like soccer. We play it in the neighborhood. Let me do this. So we went and got a physical, and, and I, I tried out for soccer. And I, I had not run so much in ever. Like, I'd never gotten nauseous 
from running. Like, I thought that something was wrong. Like, I'm clearly broken. Um, and so it came to the end. And I don't remember if I asked or if, if the coach told me, but he's like, you're on the bubble. And again, no frame of reference. So I'm like, I don't know what a bubble is or why I'm on it, but okay. Um, for those who don't know, that means I may or may not make it. If the bubble pops, I don't. I guess if it doesn't pop, then I'm on the bubble indefinitely on the team. I don't know. I don't, think, I don't know that anyone's worked it out that far. Um, but as it turned out, there was a, a continuation of that tri, trying, uh, the, the trials the next day. And again, I don't remember if I knew this or I didn't, but I know what happened is I did, didn't go back. <laughs> I just didn't go back. I was like, I guess soccer's not for me. And, uh, you know, I went to college. I had a glorious soccer. No, nothing happened. Soccer never was a thing for me. Um, because I, I didn't endure. I, the time was, I'm going to give it this one afternoon. I got nauseous and I was on a bubble. I thought I was going to be on the soccer team. Okay, we'll go a different direction. And I didn't get on the team. Sometimes we don't endure because we've set the time frame differently than God would set it. We get fed up because we've put our timing where the Bible says God's timing. So Paul says in due time or in God's timing we'll reap a harvest. And and what is this reaping? In verse 8, Paul tells us that if we sow to the Spirit or if we live in step with the Spirit or we walk in step with the Spirit, we'll reap eternal life. Um, Paul isn't saying here that if we, uh, if we do good works, we'll be saved by our good works. And in fact, this whole letter is about <laughs> doing good works is not going to save you. Right? The, the, the Galatians were struggling with this. So what he's not saying is, hey guys, if you continue to do God, good works, then you'll reap eternal life and that means that you will save yourself. He's not saying that. He's saying that we can only sow to the Spirit because God is at work in our lives. And so these good works, these good things are expressions of God's work in our life. And when it, come time to, when it comes time to reap, we'll reap that full benefit of eternal life. And not only that, but if we, just, if we, if we look at a few scriptures, God promises to bless us just for our obedience beyond just this idea of like, again, eternal life, going to be with God the Father. If you go to Matthew, you can go there, you don't have to. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 11, it says this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Why, Jesus? (laughs) And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. There's a reward for our obedience to God in the midst of suffering and, and persecution. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, uh, he's talking to wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves. Um, it's at verse 23, he says to all of us, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. We get an inheritance. We're adopted into a family. Inheritances aren't even earned 
if you're blood, right? If, if you're a blood relative and, and, and someone passes and you get an inheritance, you didn't do anything for that. And in fact, your ancestor, your, your parent or grandparent, they did a lot of things for you to be, right? For you to exist, and you're reaping the benefits of that. And here he says that for those of us who have been adopted, brought into the family intentionally, chosen, he says, you will reap a harvest of an inheritance. And then in 2 Corinthians, I've quoted this before, but we're going to all know this by the end of, I don't know when. <laughs> by the end. <laughs> Um, 2 Corinthians uh, 4.17 For this light momentary affliction talking about life is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that is a lot of words. But here's, here's what the pocket dictionary of theological terms defines as glory. It's a biblical term used in reference to the unapproachable and mighty manifestation of the immediate presence of God. The biblical concept of glory carries with it connotations of inexpressible beauty and majesty. I don't know if about you, I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been driving by the Shenandoah Valley quite a bit because I have to do that to get here every day. Um, I don't say that begrudgingly. I enjoy it. It is beautiful. And in the fall, it's crazy pretty. Um, today we drove in and uh, there was like fog and then it was like bright colors and then it was like more fog. And I mean, it's just amazing. Cows, sheep. There's something cool and majestic about farmland. I mean, just the vastness of it. But that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the glory that we will experience. I mean, the greatest experiences that we have in this life only begin to just give us a little tiny taste. A little, almost like you're trying to taste the candy through the paper. You know, we got some Halloween candy again. I don't know how you feel about that, but we did. We're going to give it out. And and. We smelled it. It was a big, big Costco bag of chocolate. And you know what it smelled like? Chocolate. It was awesome. Chocolate and peanuts. But I wasn't tasting anything. I was just, just beginning to smell it. And that's what this life is. And, and in Psalm 16, verse 11, he says, you, you make known to me the path of life. Pastor Jermaine quoted this, in your presence there's fullness of joy. What would it be like for you to be so joyful that the meter, it's as full? Can you imagine? What would that be like? If you're feeling like angsty about that, good. Because that's what this world is intended to do. All the tasty good things that you experience, all the joys that you are supposed to experience, all the pleasures that you experience, when they end, they are intended to give you a sense that, man, I wish there was more. Because God is the more. And he says here, that's the harvest that we will reap.
Sometimes we get these glimpses of the glory of God, tastes of the harvest to come. When we see a friend come to trust in Jesus Christ, when our kid gets baptized, when God heals a loved one, when we, when we walk in integrity and God vindicates us at work, we don't send that email and they get in trouble. I mean, God bless them, please help them, but also, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> these, are, these are little glimpses into the hope that we have. So what should we do? What should we do? What does he tell us to do? He says, well, don't give up, right? Let us not become weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap a harvest. What if we don't give up? Family, don't give up. The the, the minimally frightening reality, and I'll, I'll explain why it's minimal, but the minimally frightening reality is that your future experience of things is dependent upon your present perseverance. Your future experience of these things is dependent upon your present perseverance. A lot of words. And I'm, that's, that's a little frightening. But what takes the pressure off is that my present perseverance is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon what? The spirit of God at work in me. Because what do we say? What's happening? We're sowing to who? The spirit. Who's at work in my life? The spirit. When you wake up tomorrow, what's going to be the, the, the decisive factor that, that determines that you are going to have faith in Jesus Christ? Is it going to be because you're that much more awesome? Because you're a great guy? Or because God is at work and he's committed himself to you? You are all better than me. That being said... It's because God is at work. If, you're, if your salvation, your present perseverance is dependent upon you, you will fail. Because you and I, we are made from clay. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is that God saves. And he doesn't just give us an opportunity to be saved. He saves. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you have been saved. This is why we do baptisms. There's no baptismal here, but this is where we would do it. Or maybe down here. We haven't decided. But when you get baptized, it, it gives you a moment in time to look back and say, God did something. I witnessed it. You all witnessed it. This is why we come together for communion. Because we can remember, God did something. I'm witnessing it again. You're witnessing it again. So even though our future experience is dependent upon our present perseverance, part of the means, part of the way that God works that in us is that when we hear this, don't give up, the Holy Spirit becomes active in our life, and we, by faith, don't give up. I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing about God at work in your life is, is who's at work in your life? God. Do you have to do work? Yes. Who gets the credit? God. So what do we do? Don't give up. The good news is that you're not alone in this. You may feel alone in moments like, like this where you're, you're struggling. I don't know if I can do good in this situation. One of the temptations of the enemy is to say, you know the only one who's going through this? And you're all alone. And that is the lie. 
Jesus says in Matthew 28, when he gives the Great Commission, go baptizing them, go therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And he doesn't say, good luck guys, I'll talk to you later, we'll get burritos afterwards. No, he says, I will be with you. And then what happens in Acts 2? He sends the Holy Spirit, and in a pretty dynamic way, it wasn't like a prayer meeting, and they're like, ooh, I think I felt the Spirit. No, everyone starts speaking in tongues. People think they're drunk, and Peter's like, no, actually, you crucified Christ, and like thousands of people get saved. The Holy Spirit comes in power to show us, in part, that he is here. Some of you have heard the lie, I'm all alone, and I want to say to that lie, get out. I care about you, and I want you to hear this, you are not alone. And in fact, in Romans 8, another chapter that we should just memorize. 838, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and don't think that you can separate the love of God from the presence of God. Right? God's not going to love you from afar and somehow he's going to love you, but he's going to be separated. No, that is an expression of his commitment to you. Don't give up, family. William Carey, he uh, wrestled in India seven years, hard years, lost a child, his wife, um, as I said, her mental health deteriorated, he was alone in, in, in an earthly sense, his kids were, the public schools were not good. I mean, I'm being facetious, but like the problems were real. But in December 1800, William Carey baptized his first convert, Krishna Pal, and a few months later published the New Testament in Bengali. And over the remainder of his ministry, about 41 years, he translated the Bible into India's ma all of their major languages. Um, and, and I want to say about tens, of, tens more, at least in part, and served as a catalyst for the worldwide missionary movement of the 19th century. I mean, some of you knew that ending, and I appreciate you for not telling your neighbor. <laughs> but, but this was a man who, who had reason to be weary. But he understood. And, and if you read any of his, his uh, quotes, I mean, he's, he's, oh, man, things are hard. I'm, I'm at the lowest point, but, but God is with me. I was listening to this. Just as we close, I was listening to this um, podcast of a, of, a, of a man who was reflecting on the loss of his son. His son kind of just fell dead um, unexpectedly. And he, and he was talking about walking through that, that season of, of sorrow. Seasons, really. Um, and he described it as, in God, he had these two streams, sorrow and joy. And... They don't meet. It's, it's not as though they, they come together and kind of water down one another. Like he still misses his son. 
And he will probably miss his son until he sees his son in heaven. And yet, he's joyful that his son was with the Lord and that he is able to trust in the sovereignty of God and he's able to walk in, in fellowship with his God through this suffering. And family, we want sometimes a, a gospel or a life that says, let's, let's turn off the sorrow faucet or let's numb the sorrow faucet and let's, I don't nearly even really need the joy faucet, just make me happy. But what God is inviting us into when he says don't become weary in doing good because at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up is, is to acknowledge that there's a stream of sorrow but that there's also a stream of joy and that Jesus Christ is intimately connected to both. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for these wonderful people. What a, what a blessing and a gift each person here is. I pray that you would pour out your spirit. Your word calls your spirit your comforter. God, I pray that you would comfort. There are some who are in the middle of real pain and struggling to know what it looks like to do good in those moments. And God, I pray that you would give them a taste of the glory to come. And that you'd give them a sense of your, your abiding presence. And there are those in this room, God, who, has, who have, have gone through suffering, who have gone through pain, who have gone through difficulty. And I pray that you would quicken them to open their eyes, to comfort others with the comfort with, with, with which you have comforted them. And Jesus, most of all, I pray that you would help us to see you clearly. And as we are dissatisfied with this world, that it would draw our eyes up to you to find our satisfaction in you. Pour out your love on these people, I pray. Pour out your love on these people, Jesus. Fill them with your spirit. Help them to know and love you. In Jesus' name.